A Hero's Journey is, by its nature, a podcast filled with spoilers. We recommend reading the book beforehand and then diving into the episode, but proceed at your own risk. Hi, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a literary podcast. I'm your host and judge, Jack, and I'm here with my cryptic cytonics. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. Each week, we look at a different book through Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This week, we're discussing Star Sight, which is the second book in the Skyward series by Brandon Sanderson. It follows Spin, our heroine from the first story, who is a space fighter pilot for the human race that has been trapped on a distant planet and being kept in uh, a pseudo-preserve slash jail by an alien government that is comprised of many different types of alien races who view the humans as being too aggressive and warlike after they try to take over the galaxy three or four times. So there's a little bit of truth to that, apparently, but they've they've been treating them unfairly and killing them for generations on this planet, and... uh, Spin has been able to discover at least partially a warp drive technology that would allow her people to flee that relies somewhat on her own magical cytonic abilities. Um, When a ship of an unknown alien race crash lands on her planet and she discovers that they are these sort of space elves that don't look too dissimilar to humans and that she was on her way to the alien government and imprints the coordinates of in space of their space station, she decides to swap spots with her because this alien is uh, essentially unconscious using a hologram created by Mbot, her AI spaceship. And they travel across the galaxy, infiltrate this government and learn that that government is recruiting their own space force um, with real pilots because previously they mostly used drones she enters into the space force trains and meets many different with and meet trains with and meets many different aliens and their cultures all while trying to steal the hyperdrive technology so she can bring it back to her people and use that to try to flee their imprisonment um, along the way she learns more about her magical powers uh, the alien races uh, the geopolitical conflicts that are i guess it'd be spatial political conflicts that are that are throughout the galaxy uh, and learns a little bit more about her cytonic powers and the creatures known as Delvers, which are pretty much the big, bad, boogeyman kraken of space. Starting off where all good Top Gun sequels begin, uh, looking at you, Tom Cruise, with body swapping places with an alien to go invade a foreign territory. Yeah, so this week we're following Spin, like we said, and she's on a journey to learn more about her own powers as well as to find humanity's place in the galaxy. They've been left in the dark now for multiple generations since her great-grandmother's time, and they don't really know how they fit into what's going on or why they are where they are. Um, And those things, as well as more information about her powers, is what Spin is searching for uh, and what she is able to unravel. Our call to adventure is the new ship crash landing here on their planet. The crashing of the ship is something that's different. We got a bit of a time jump from book one to book two. And in that time, the humans have 
migrated off the surface into the sort of metallic shield uh, debris that is encasing their planet. Uh, and they've taken over a couple of the, the command stations there. And they've been fighting the alien government for, I think it's at least several months now. And things have fallen into a bit of a routine while they try to and strengthen their human forces. And the introduction of this ship is something that breaks that routine and pretty much sets us off on our on our adventure. For our refusal of the call, after that ship is crash-landed and she's the first to it and she's, you know, here's the last few words of the um, of the injured alien, the idea to take her place is already forming in her mind. And there's a couple of reasons not to do it, mainly... You know, how am I going to pretend to be this alien? And her her ship pipes up and goes, no, I could do that. I could run a hologram off your fancy new bracelet. No one would be able to tell the difference. And, well, I don't know about her culture. Oh, I already downloaded her ship's databases. Okay. And well, but what really holds her up is Jorgen's essentially his permission. And she phrases it not really his permission. She wants him to say that he trusts her and her instincts and won't disallow her from doing it and uh and so that initial i don't need i need others permission is our refusal for the meaning of the mentor i've chosen the unconscious alien alenic who spins is going to be impersonating for the majority of the rest of this book and the information that an opportunity that she provides spin is really what sets this journey going uh, and, and it's that kind of interaction, though brief, that allows her to accomplish any of this. For crossing the threshold, uh, I'm choosing to use the hyper jump that she uses through space. So Elenic is able to imprint the coordinates of her destination through her cytonic powers, because they both are cytonics, into Spin's head. And it's, it's fading fast, but she manages to use that information uh, in conjecture with her ship's hyperdrive powers and they they jump through the nowhere and find themselves in the space surrounding the space station star site our belly of the whale comes when later on she well immediately she enters in oh another funny pilot thing they're still using transponders which they definitely aren't but that was the closest word that he had uh to an aviation equivalent in spaceships so that was interesting they enter into the space station, they meet all the alien races, she gets a household, and then finally she ends up competing in this trial to be accepted into the Space Force that she, um, it's actually a, a fairly dangerous trial with live ammunition. And once she has, has performed in that and, and entered into that contest and succeeded, there's no way she can back out now. She's, she's got to see this through. All right, so starting off, I think that the Call to Adventure is pretty good. Uh, more of more of the mind blast with all that information from Alenic than the actual ship crash, but I, I agree that that is the good Call to Adventure, setting us off, letting us know that we are going to be going to a different space with some new challenges. Um, but I don't like your refusal at all. Asking if... Jorgen, if she can go, is just really an excuse to talk to Jorgen more and to let some of their feelings get expressed. She's not really asking for permission. If she was refusing, she would try and radio Cobb or... I might agree with you with a, a character 
a different kind of character, but Spence's main characteristic is being headstrong and quick to act. So this is kind of a massive show of restraint on her part to actually get permission to do this job. I mean, I don't think she would have done it in the first book, but in this book, at least she seems to be, well, no, she doesn't really. <laughs> she kind of disobeyed Jorgen's orders during Multiple this game. battle. In the or, very first scene. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, that's okay. Well, I really don't like the Alenic as a mentor. She just doesn't do enough. The star site and like the location for it, it that's not enough, I think. There's no guide like, these are the factions that I should contact, or these are the people who might be helping you. It's just literally, this is where I was going. So Not even like a psychic imprint with like a way to recognize friend from foe or something, a dump of a plan. It's right. literally, right, Zach, would you, uh, Lord of the Rings, if Gandalf had shown up given Frodo possession of the ring and then fucking died. Would you still have called him the mentor? Uh, I think it's a little less about dying. In your comparison, Gandalf would have left a, a journal with instructions and information no, about no. the history no, of the, no, the ring. ring. No, no, no. no. There's Mordor. <laughs> ring? Not even, not even ring Mordor. Ring Bree. Just a, a note that says Brie on it. <laughs> no other information. Even with a healthy info dump from a Lennox ship, I don't think that really gives a Lennox the mentor role. She's still just kind of an info dump, and uh, she is our call to adventure. So anyway, going on to our crossing the threshold, I think this is fine, but I also think that it encompasses the belly of the whale. As soon as Spencer jumps to the space station and makes contact with them, she can't go back anymore. Um, there's really no way for her to leave without revealing what's happening, and she can't leave unless she gets all the information she needs about the hyperdrives or learns more about her powers and unless she wants to sacrifice basically humanity because they need this information to survive. There's no way for her to, to leave. I think there's a distinction between the crossing the threshold and the belly in levels of, I guess, danger is the primary thing I'm, I'm going to focus in on here. She's, she's got that overarching, you know, I could be discovered sort of danger throughout the entirety of the book after the crossing the threshold. But once she's entering the trials for the Space Force, she has live combat with creatures and ships that she's unfamiliar with and using, you know, live ammunition and something she thought was going to be just a training exercise. So I want to uh, kind of focus in here on the is, on the immediate danger. Is she really in danger? Because I think she even says she's one of the best pilots there and they're not targeting the best pilots. They're targeting the weak pilots. She's not... Doesn't she still nearly die twice in the first bit of the trial? I don't think so. At least once. And then she goes around playing hero. And I don't remember if, there's, if it happens twice. The first, I think the first time happens when she realizes it's live rounds. Also, even, even being the best pilot and a main character and therefore, you know, being protected by that whole bit. Um, are you... Her, ship has plot are, armor. Her literal ship has plot armor. 
I will say that this book makes a particular point that being the best doesn't reduce your chance of dying, right? This isn't like Tao in The Burning where in an average fight, right, we're not worried about him unless there's 13 guys. And we also the characters make the in this point book. that this particular fight it includes a bunch of pilots that aren't drones, which makes it even harder for her to, uh, you know, use her magical abilities in any sort of meaningful well, way. I she's mean, only fighting the drones. Oh, yeah, yeah, but there was several instances on in their which, side. Like, yeah, but they're not on a team. Oh, they're not on her side until she goes around and starts recruiting them to be on her team. Yeah, they're not actively hindering her, but she's she's also not. Trust me, bot, trust I... me. Uh, a pilot that you're not communicating with that is, <laughs> that is not experienced in the same is just Zach, as... Zach. Zach, are you trying to play "I'm the pilot" card already? Not it's yet. Only, not it's yet. Only we're, we're, we're only at belly. I'm not going to do that yet. Um, I will let you fly the airplane, and you tell me. I, I think it's close. Uh, I'm inclined to give it to Zach. Only because I think that there are two very different kinds of danger that she's gotten herself into. In the crossing, we represent sort of the political and cultural dangers where she could be found out as a spy. And that's kind of exemplified by her worries about the vapor later on. And in our belly, we're representing the very physical danger that she is moving into flying an unfamiliar ship against a government that will apparently kill its own trainees which you know her own government will do but that's in real combat it won't kill them in mock trials yeah i think that's fair i mean people did die so uh that is going to close us out on our departure with just that meeting with the mentor gone and that's just because our mentor is back at base busy doing cob stuff we know, um, we know who he is. He's just not really mentoring at the moment. He's busy leading an armada. Chilling with our best pals ever, a robot, a robot and a slug, we come to the triple whammy of our Road of Trials. As Jack alluded to, our Road of Trials here is focused on three areas of growth. Uh, there's a cultural and political area of enlightenment where she's learning about the different races that exist in the galaxy, how they interact with each other, the different governments, um, all things that she has been completely in the dark with before she's learning about them through in person interactions with these races, both as pilots and kind of throughout her day to day activities, as well as uh, information dumps from essentially their internet that Mbot is reading through throughout the story. So, and, and giving her information to questions as she asks them. The Road of Trials also encompasses her learning about her powers. And she does this through two different ways. One is through interactions with other Cytonics, including the one kind of human ally slash uh, antagonist that exists inside of her flight team. Um, who is pretty much the only human that she has any interaction with after she hyper jumps uh, to star sight. And that's because this one is especially licensed one because of her cytonic powers. Uh, she's allowed out and kind of kept on a leash and to be a, a fighter pilot for the government. So she's learning about it, not only through her interactions with them, but also by 
asking targeted questions of people and trying to do a little bit of gossiping, a little bit spying to try to figure out if she can learn more about her abilities, and she does. And then finally, uh, there's learning more about the uh, the Delvers, which is related to the Nowhere, something that she knows is related to her powers, but she had seen a Delver on a security feed at the very beginning of the story, uh, killing a bunch of humans and coming back to attack her planet, but she didn't really understand what they were. And then she finds out a lot of information about the Delvers, how they were used in wartime, how they react to communications. Um, she sees them several times as she's hyper jumping through the nowhere. Uh, she's being to uh, enter into and fight uh, a Delver. So a lot of information there related to Delvers that I'm sure will become um, that were immediately useful in this story, and I'm sure will also prove useful as the as the books continue. For our meeting with the higher power, uh, we have Kuna, who is the one uh, government agent who invited Elenic to compete and join into the Space Force. Um, he is a government official of some authority, but not you know complete authority here on the space station. He has to compete with his sort of rival who's more militaristic minded. Uh, Kuna seems to be interested in bringing in what they call the inferior races, I believe, uh, of aliens in order to bolster up the government in areas that it's weak in. Um, he's her point of con main contact. He's the one who's kind of her employer here, using her to spy on his counterpart but also trying to showcase her race as being useful and why she's there in the first place for our temptress uh, we have this constant idea that she is dwelling within herself and she even mentions it several times to mbot that she wishes she could just find a hyperdrive or steal a hyperdrive from something and get out that's why she first goes to the trials oh they'll put me in a ship that has a hyperdrive and then I'll come back and get you and then we'll leave or I'll sneak into this part of the ship or there's multiple instances where she talks about how I'm just going to get this hyperdrive and I'm going to leave. But even when she's saying those things, I think there was one time where she was saying to Mbot, she goes, we'll do that. But man, it would be really nice to learn more about my powers or learn more about this and that. And there's always a reason kind of not to do it, which is why um, even though she's met by a lot of aversion in that goal, um, it's still something that's in the back of her mind. For our Atonement with the Creator, we have a realization. She spends this whole book interacting with people that she starts to get to like. Um, and it's a little bit easier for her to get to like some of these um, non-primary races of this government. They have these crab-like people. I don't remember what their names are, but they're the, they're the Krell from the first book which is their human's name for them, not their name for themselves. Um, and she's viewing them entirely as a race of monsters and how everybody, on as soon as she gets there, and she holds this truth for a very long time, everybody on the space station must be aware of the atrocities that uh, these people are committing on the humans. And this is all just a facade to make the other races think that they, um, they aren't evil. And it's not until quite a ways into the book where she gets taken to a essentially a water park uh, and watching some of the Krell children play in the bubbles and the, and the water fountains that she realizes that just like humans, the Krell are a diverse species and uh, they're complex and they're not inherently evil. 
something that um, is a big revelation for her and a bit of a hard pill to swallow after growing up, you know, them being responsible for her father's death and the imprisonment of her people, but a really good growth moment for her. Our apotheosis is uh, a realization that in order to save her people, she kind of combines all of the, her road of trials and the story up to that point, because the more militaristic minded governor or government agent takes his newly formed space force and hyper jumps them just outside of her home planet. And they use the one licensed human they have to a cytonic call out into the nowhere to draw a Delver into their world. And in doing so, completely threatens not only the space force that is there, but her home people and all of all of the humans that she knows. So using all the information that she's had up to that point, she orders communication silenced among the humans and then also imprints uh, one of her geo or space locations coordinates that she has ingrained into her mind to the Delver. Unfortunately, the only one that she has at this point is that's not her home planet, is Starsight. So she sends the Delver back to Starsight um, to wreak havoc there. And it's it's a, a very big realization moment, not only that she can do these things, and this is how the humans have to respond, but also, oh no, what have I done? I just had this whole Atomic Creator moment where I realized these guys aren't bad guys, and now I've just sent the big monster to the doorstep. So... And then our ultimate boon is re-teaming back up with her old flight team, who now know that she's a human, um, and they they team together to fight the the Delver, and uh, in order to save Starsight and all the people living there. So, and not only is she kind of coming full circle from everything that we've talked about at this point, but she is also showcasing to the galaxy hey maybe humans aren't inherently evil and maybe there's a way that um that, that we can all get along all right so going on our road of trials i think in a very classic way this book fulfills all of those i think all of these things you could say tie into different aspects of spence's growth uh, you could see her growing as a spy like you said learning about her powers um through her gossip and research and targeted questioning uh learning how to be a, a kind of a resident of the galaxy with her learning about the other cultures and races and the politics um and really her interactions i think with her flight team it is the best way to show that she's becoming a, a resident of the galaxy i don't know how better to phrase that becoming more you not worldly but universally I don't know. More big brain. Um, more big, sure. More big brain. And the last thing, learning about the Delvers and magic and becoming better at being a Cytonic, I think that's very important too. I don't know. I think that this it just, it fits the very classic road of trials. Um, I, I think we find this more in our young adult books where we have less of a question or less of a question about the road of trials whereas in some of our older books we're like no this person's kind of already established and they're not changing too much but spin definitely changes because of these um tasks going on to our meeting with the higher power what gift does kuna give that actually helps spin in her in her goal here to learn more about her powers and to help humans place in the galaxy wow i'm glad you've 
phrase it that way because there's multiple instances. There's uh, right when she gets there, not only is she providing her with the, hey, you're going to be joining into the Space Force and the, everything that we've talked about has kind of dwelled from him calling her there and all that. But even beyond all that, uh, he also talks to her several times about Cytonics. He tells her eventually once uh, she reveals to him that she's human, that, hey, we and hum- humans could probably be integrated into society in a way that's, you know, I've been even mentions in that conversation before she reveals herself that he believes humans can be rehabilitated. Um, so there's lots of instances in where he is going to be the human races in to the wider galaxy. Yeah. You know, those humans in need of rehabilitation. Yes, exactly what I was thinking. Jack. Maybe it's a little bit because we ultimately know what Kuna does decide that I'm inclined to give to Zach, but he does have the stench of the superiority. Yeah, about him. Think... And also their name is the superiority. At the beginning, I feel like Kuna isn't a higher power. He's not trying to help the humans or spin she's trying to keep her from using her powers saying her saying how dangerous it is and then he wants to help the undal or i think that's the people that elenic is from he doesn't want to help humans initially oh, it's only does. later that he actually no, it's does not want later to. it's just later that we find out about it fair enough he, he's using the elenic and the space elves as the like stepping stone like hey we got to get the galaxy to think these guys are okay and then maybe they'll be able to swallow the human pill. Going on to our temptress here, I don't like this. I don't like this. I think more in line with Spin's character would be a temptation to attack this superiority and try and like maybe take out uh, what wins Winzak. God, she fucking should have just murdered him and teleported out. Would have yeah, saved her a lot of trouble. Or even later, like continuing to lie to Kuna about being a human or not being a human and oh, keeping how satisfying secret. is it when she does that to braid and braid goes human human yeah <laughs> um like i think either one of those would have fit more in and spin's character i don't think really stealing something and just going back is attempt like you said she she says oh man i should do this because that is technically her mission that's why she's there but it's not a temptation otherwise it would have happened maybe the one flaw in this book in general is that as we joked about a little bit in the departure, Spencer is actually a really good spy and she shouldn't be, she should be terrible at this. She should be constantly panicking and like ready to jump the hell out of there or just run. And she doesn't Uh, moving on to the fantastic atonement with the creator. Yes, this is a fantastic atoma with the creator. I have nothing against this. I love I love the realization that Spin has because I I mean you can tell that's what the book is driving towards the whole time with her making friends with the one Dione. Yeah, she's just she's coming to the realization that you know all of these aliens are complex, they have actual lives. It, Ooh, it just takes her a while to get there. Did we just screw ourselves over though alex because i'm in uh the not a hero camp clearly unbiased judge is the temptation it, does to she believe continue, that yeah does evil? she continually fault her temptation when we 
watch her continuously reject the proof that she's seeing that the superiority are people. Ooh. Oh, like, that is a lot. That's much better than also apologies to any of our listeners that were yelling at us as you listened to that previous <laughs> section. We're not as smart as we think we are, because that is definitely the temptation, and the character continually falls to it until she hits her atonement and realizes she's been wrong. For our apotheosis here, I think a better apotheosis might be the realization that the superiority is intending to use Delvers as a weapon. Yeah, so, but that realization is just kind of that Winzik is a megalomaniacal asshole, and I feel like we all already knew that, including Spin. Yeah, but okay. I don't... The end don't, justifies the means, alright? I don't like this hypothesis, like the realization she has to silence the human forces and sending the Delver away. That, I, that to me, is tied into the ultimate boon. She's saving people, and then she goes and saves Starsight too. Again, saving, you know, people, not humans, but in the broader sense of the word. See, I, the, the delineation to me is that the reason I chose this as the apotheosis is because it is a culmination of the trials that she underwent, right? The the apotheosis that you're describing is, well, you know... I mean, that's what the boon is, too, though, right? The culmination of all the trials she underwent. So the I, I think the problem that we're hitting here is that there are there's not a big apotheosis there's not a realization uh, they're right they're gonna summon a delver and yeah they're crazy enough to do it is probably the biggest of the realizations but it's not it's not a particular aha moment right she well, really she I mean, has a bunch it is of to spin, right like she's sitting there this whole time thinking wow we're really learning how to fight the delver and then they get well, there are, at the those end are, and those it's... are two different realizations the realization that they're that they're Play, that the the Delver fighting weapon is send the Delver to detritus is one realization, and the realization that Winzik is fucking crazy enough to send Braid in on a suicide mission to summon the Delver is a second one, and the third little realization is she is actually willing to kill Braid. I wanted Braid. To she die. doesn't. She doesn't agonize over it too much, but she does have that moment of like. Well. The, the ironic part is that her killing of Braid is what summons... Saves the Braid. <laughs> no, her decision yeah. to kill Braid is what summons, summons the, the Delver. Delver. Yeah. So I think I think there's a smattering of two big realizations and a third little one. And I think any of those could be the apotheosis if you wanted it to be. <sighs> All right. Well, then... Uh, we're going to have another perfect initiation because the ultimate boon is super ultimate boonie saving not only her planet, but then the the space station where she just realized all these other people live and she wants to save them. So, I mean, I, I, I agree that obviously saving Starsight and defeating, sending the Delver away permanently is the ultimate boon. The act of saving Detritus felt intentionally written to me as a non-heroic action she does right in a i mean i'm not am, am i wrong with the fact that the, the way that she saves detritus is inherently not meant to be particularly heroic I, it it's it's everything it needs to be i guess it's desperation it's ultimately not important to this point but i think it i i i felt like we were brushing over 
over her actions a little bit and the character even feels remorse for what she did and goes and fixes it. So I just feel like that needs to be stated before we go flawlessly heroic. <laughs> but now you can say now I can say flawlessly heroic because she ultimately redeems herself. Yes. Perfect initiation. Uh, giving in to the hopelessness of the vacuum of space and letting it all end, we come to our return. Yeah, for our refusal of the return, at the very end of this battle with the Delver, her ship gets damaged and she gets sucked into the vacuum of space. Uh, very stereotypical. The, uh, you know, the hero is sacrificing herself to, uh, com- to save the people, and that's what's happening here, and that's often our refusal. For the magic flight, we have unconsciousness over a grand period of time. For the rescue from without, um, we have the realization that when she was uh, sucked into the vacuum of space and likely to die, she's saved by her old crew member, the draft that is the one race where it's two bodies um, or two parents melded into one test child. So she's rescued by Morty, who had originally chosen not to go into battle uh, and was trying to get pretty much redrafted. Um, but then when he saw the, the Delver appear over the space station, he went and got a ship and, and came up and assisted uh, and saved Spin's life. So great rescue from without. And it only was really able to happen because of the interactions that Spin had with Morty. So... For the crossing of the return threshold, we have her reuniting with Mbot. There is uh, a time where she wakes up, and then she uh, pretty much has a brief conversation with Kuna, and then we find out that the same guy who summoned the Delver, the military um, government official, he is probably going to be put on trial, but now he's staging a military coup and uh, trying to make it look like Spin is going on a, a human uh, inevitable blood rampage throughout the space station uh, using Braid as the kind of human stand-in, making her look really bad. She's fleeing through the government plaza and um, is searching for her ship all the meanwhile, and she finds her ship, and it's being broken into pieces, and she's devastated. And then Mbot speaks up from a drone that he has put his consciousness into, a much more portable version of himself. And it's that reuniting with Mbot that brings us back to the beginning of the story, right? Because at the very beginning, it was pretty much just her and Mbot together, whether you want to take the beginning to her fighting the drones off on her own, or you want to pull it a little bit forward to when they're just the only two going off into the wider galaxy. Now it's her and Mbot reunited. Now, unfortunately, for the master of two worlds and freedom to live, uh, I'm just going to blank state these with a bit of a middle book syndrome. She does have newfound powers that she has reunited herself with. She's now a, uh, a magic user. And I wanted to say that she's also been improving humanity's image in the galaxy, right? Now she's the model human or what humans could be. But there is a bit of not really because the military government official is now blaming her for all these terrorist attacks. So 
it's it's a bit of a mixed bag on what you want to think about for the master of two worlds uh unfortunately the freedom to live she and mbot jump into the nowhere to get away from the soldiers that are chasing them so definitely can't go home because uh, she's already been called on her next adventure <laughs> yeah she is she is she is hopped right into her next adventure you know she can't go she doesn't have to go home but she can't stay there so starting off with the refusal Zach, I think you're right. This is uh, the very classic win, but I, I don't think I can survive the win. And she turns out to. So <clears throat> I can't argue against this. It's the classic Campbell step. Same thing with the magical flight of unconscious and being rescued by Morty, Mortimer, Mortimer. Yeah, so all of those are very good, very classic Campbell hero's journey steps. I don't know so much about this crossing the return threshold. I see what you're saying with like returning to Mbot, returning to where they started at the beginning of the book, but it doesn't fit the rest of the definition with like sharing the information and trying to step back into the, into the world. Um, so I, I like the meeting with Kuna a little bit more, but I still don't think it fits entirely because of the military coup that's occurring. So she's able to share this information and knowledge with Kuna that, hey, you know, humans are okay. We're not all crazy, bloodthirsty monsters, but then you can't share with the rest of the world. Okay, afterwards. well, let me... It, I, I like... I hadn't thought about that. I like what you're talking about with the... Um, the conversations with Kuna, but if you want to take it one step further to be the crossing of the return threshold, she then immediately takes actions to make sure Kuna survives this military coup. She saves him immediately through several firefights and then gives him the bracelet that she'd been using for the whole book and disguises him as somebody else so he can escape and take the knowledge back to the humans and the galaxy at large. Yeah, was that just sitting there like a giant fucking Chekhov's gun for anyone else of like, when the fuck is going to be the time to use the second skin? Yeah, they kept saying it, kept yeah. saying yeah, it. Yeah, so you, like, you knew you knew it was going to be relevant. We got to the end and I was like, what the hell is the point of this thing? Is that, I was like, is she just going to sneak out with it? And then I was like, oh, it's him. Boo. Boo. It saved humanity, potentially. Yeah, I think Alex might be onto the stronger crossing of the return threshold. And uh, yeah, there there is no mastery of two worlds and no freedom to live because our characters are still growing and learning and being trapped in subspace. And all the meanwhile, her boyfriend is spelunking for slugs. Yeah, but like in a hot bread way. and baking bread with her grandma. Extra hot. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna finishes out here on Starsight. Just those last two points missing in the return and just three points missing total. No mentor, no master of two worlds, and no freedom to live. Putting spin very high on our list of modern heroes. Finishing up with our closing thoughts, uh, I had a lot of fun with Starsight, and I'm real excited for Cytonic. I'm currently burning through the novellas as fast as my schedule allows me. I don't know what it is, but this series has pulled me in real fast, real hard. I 
was reading the Wax and Wayne books right before uh, continuing on in preparation for doing those for the pod. And this pulled me away. I read the first one, read the second one without pause. I haven't been doing anything else. These are really good. I like um, almost all the characters. Uh, the only flaw I have with Starsight as a book outside of Spin being too good of a spy for no reason is that Ironsides is completely missing. And I thought she was a fascinating character. And I'm not, I hope they bring her back in future because I'm not 100% sure why the answer in this book was to just disappear her. Uh, like Jack, I really enjoy this series. Uh, I think Starsight had some slower points to it where it, it didn't seem as fast paced as Skyward. So it didn't suck me in as much. And again, this is my second time reading it. So I already knew the plot. I was really excited to get to that end points where we have the the battle and spin making the realizations about all of the other alien races, how they're also people. I think that part is done really, really well. Um, and similar to Jack, I'm burning my way through the novellas right now in anticipation of Cytonic, and I cannot wait to read about that and discuss it with all of you. I will also say on the pacing, I think the slower pace would have worked a little bit better if we hadn't been basically confined to just Spin's viewpoint and were with a bunch of characters that we didn't care about as much because one of the things I'm loving with the novellas is getting to spend time with our other roster. And now I might... Cytonic might come out and I might be real disappointed when we spend the entire time mostly from Spin's perspective doing weird adventure stuff when I just want to know what's going on with everybody else. But that's okay. We get the Jorgen novella. like. But that's book 3.1. Unlike most sanderson books and i you know i'm not an expert i don't listen to word of sorry let me put my cosmere hat on it's word of brandon unlike most sanderson stories and i don't claim to be a a, the biggest sanderson fan in the world although i am a huge sanderson fan there's some people who are fanatics about it i don't listen to his talks at conventions and read his blog and all that but this story typically i love both the characters and the world and the magic right and they all blend together in such a way that leaves me at the end of the book going dane i need more this story i like the characters a lot i don't particularly care about the magic maybe because the it plays a much smaller role than in his other stories. And then the world being the galaxy, the historical elements of the human in, you know, conquests or attempted conquests is interesting, but I don't particularly care about the superiority and the makeup of the aliens. So while I enjoy the book greatly, it's, I don't think it holds up to the Cosmere um, when I'm just comparing it amongst other Sanderson work. Now, does that mean it's still not a very good book and compared to other authors and uh, it, it, it would not be ranked highly? No, but uh, I, I just think I'm comparing it to the top of the, the top of the game. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoy Hero's Journey as much as we love doing it, don't forget to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from. And in our show notes, you can find a link to our Discord, which is a fun place to come hang and talk about books. As always, I've been your host and judge, Jack. 
This is Alex. And I'm Zach. And join us next week when we'll be back to the classic well of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Yay! Oh, thank you. And I'm here with my Alex is the worst and won't let me say whatever I want. Nope. And I'm here with this podcast is a fascist dictatorship. (laughs) (laughs) All my dialogue is pre-approved by Alex. Um... (laughs)